Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, welcome back to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship, September 24th, 2023. Um... Our custom is to go around and to say our names, so my name is Cass. Alex. Luis. My name is Henry. Christian. Kim. Jerry. Stephen. I'm Greg. Matthew. I'm George. Jerry. Jerry. Hi, and welcome everybody online. Thanks for joining us today. Our speaker today is uh, Tetsugen Tom Baker. Um, he is a Soto Zen priest in the lineage of Shinryu Suzuki Roshi. He was ordained by Shinki Mark Lancaster at Dragon's Leaf Temple in 2017. He practices at the marketplace in the marketplace priest tradition. Long active in the meditation and recovery group, he was a founder of the offshoot. Monthly Zen Men in 2015. Tom works in the geriatrics division at UCSF and specializes in palliative care and end-of-life issues. He married his husband, Gary Dexter, in November 2012. I appreciate for any mispronunciations, Tom. And now, uh, turn it over to you. Um, thank you, Cass. And, uh, Thank you to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship for asking me to speak. I feel, I feel very honored. Um, I've been there a number of times and to uh, one of the retreats at Vajrayani and I've always really had an affinity for this group. So this is a treat for me. Um, I'd like to start by, um, reading a koan from, uh, Hone Yamada Roshi. This is from a book he wrote of koans called The Gateless Gate. And the koan I'm going to read is called Ordinary Mind is the Way. And the case says, Joshu earnestly asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen answered, the ordinary mind is the way. Joshu asked, should I direct myself towards it or not? Nansen said, if you try to turn towards it, you go against it. Joshu asked, if I do not turn towards it, how can I know that is the way? Nansen answered, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is a blank consciousness. When you have really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as the great empty firmament. How can it be talked about on the level of right and wrong? At these words, Joshua was suddenly enlightened. 
The commentary to this says, Nansen was asked a question by Joshu, and Nansen's base was shattered and melted away. He could not justify himself. Even though Joshu has come to realization, he will have to delve into it for another 30 years before he can realize it fully. And the verse says, the spring flowers, the moon in autumn, the cool breezes of summer, the winter's snow. If idle concerns do not cloud the mind, this is man's happiest season. So Yamada Roshi was uh, Robert Aiken's teacher um, who wrote uh, Mind of Clover, which was uh, a, a book on the precepts that um, I studied when I was uh, studying for my uh, Jukai, initial Jukai with Mark Lancaster. And, and as he, he talks about in this, in this koan, he talks about the ordinary mind. And that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight is this idea of the ordinary and the sacred, um, the everyday mundane and the sacred and sort of in a framework of um, another Yamada Roshi quote, which says that great faith great doubt, and great determination. These are the three conditions of Zen practice. Great faith, great doubt, and great determination. Um, one of the things that I've always liked about the uh, Gay Buddhist Fellowship is that there are many different um, traditions represented here. And uh, it, it brings to mind the, the saying that I've always heard, of, there are many rivers to one ocean. And I think all of our different practices um, together all flow to the same place. And and this came, it was really highlighted for me recently. Um, I had the uh, the privilege to go to the Bhakti Fest in Joshua Tree last week. It's a, a kind of a sacred music festival. There's yoga and dancing and a lot of chanting, um, a lot of chanting the names of God. And I was really moved by uh, this kind of dual sensation there. Um, in the one hand, it felt very sacred. Um, and at the same time, it was incredibly ordinary. I mean, sitting in the dirt and, and chanting the Hanuman Chalisa um, and trying not to get sunburned. Uh, at the same time being somewhat transported and into this very transcendental experience. And, and the heart of devotion in, in the center of that practice is really palpable. And, and what I could feel there was this desire for transcendence. And, and that desire for transcendence, I found um, to be common to most um, expressions of practice. And it's, ex it's expressed a little differently in Zen practice. So in, instead of uh, devotion, I have a practice that's rooted in doubt. Um, at the Bhakti Fest, I, I kind of felt like a Zen spy in the house of devotional love. And, and it was really cool. But at the same time, I was aware that this is outside of sort of my wheelhouse in, in a way that, that I actually liked. Um, I felt at home um, in this devotional practice of chanting the names of God. But, you know, the cynical part of me at the same time has a hard time relating to that religious exuberance. Um, you know, I grew up in a very harsh faith. Uh, 
fundamentalist Christianity in the South. And, um, there was no exuberance and, and there was no, and there was no place for me in that, in that religion either. Um, you know, I got into Zen, uh, through, uh, the door of recovery. That was sort of my Dharma gate. Um, through 12 step recovery when I, when I, when I got sober from uh, drugs and alcohol about almost 19 years ago, um, you know, the 12 step, they talk about God and basically that you have to, you need to find, um, you need to find a higher power, if you will. And, and I found that, that, that faith that I grew up in, um, didn't work for me. And, and someone suggested I go to the Zen Center at the Meditation and Recovery Group. And I did and, and started to get there. And, and there I found a place that a spirituality that I could, that I could be at home in. Um, the good piece that I got from that upbringing, that harsh as it was, um, was this idea that, you know, we prayed every night and that, that I got the idea that spirituality was important. And that it's something you did every day. Um, so I, I can appreciate that while at the same time, um, sort of leaving the rest of it behind. Um, for Zen, you know, it starts for me just sitting alone in silence with yourself. And when you sit for periods of time, like we did today, <clears throat> my experience of that is that is the sensation of time moves very differently. Um, sometimes I sit for half an hour and it feels like three weeks. Um, other times, particularly like today when, when I, when I know that I'm, I'm going to talk, um, it goes very quickly. It seems like it's been five minutes. And, and that to me is, is one of the definitions of sacred time. It moves differently than our ordinary time. Um, and, and it's a form of transcendence. Um, just like the bhakti fest, you know, that, that transcendence is different and yet it's very similar. Uh, it's kind of interesting also that, that, that both Zen and, and bhakti have a, have a chanting pra- practice. You know, in, in bhakti, it's, it's chanting the names of God. And it's just very ecstatic and it's very devotional. Um, in Zen, the chanting is more to settle the mind. To enter meditation. And at the same time, it's, it's to feel part of this larger group, particularly when you're chanting with people in a temple. Um, it, it's connection and, and that's very similar to bhakti. Um, you know, in Zen, we talk a lot about emptiness and that emptiness, as I understand it, is, you know, empty of, um, an essential unchanging nature. And another, another way to say emptiness is in connectedness. Um, you know, I don't have an unchanging eternal soul, if you will, but what I do have is this current being that is, has been created and developed by my interactions with everyone I've ever interacted with past, present, and will be in the future. Uh, they talk about the web of Indra, which is every one of us is reflected back on every other one of us. And it talks about this intimate connection between us. 
And, and it's, it's a different way of experiencing that interconnectedness of the, of the bhakti practice. And, and I found that, that both of these practices, the Zen and the bhakti are deeply rooted in the idea of sangha, um, and ways of developing sangha. So I, I, I want to go back for just a second and talk, talk a little bit more about this, uh, Yamada Roshi quote that I talked about, great faith, great doubt, great determination. Um, I've been practicing with this a lot over, over the last year, um, particularly with the idea of, of great doubt. Um, and then I had actually written this talk, and then a couple of days ago read an article by Ken McLeod in Tricycle magazine where he said, devotion, whether to a tradition, a practice, a teacher, or an idea, is the, is the fuel for faith. And, you know, faith and, faith and devotion don't come easily to me. Um, a lot of it is, um, you know, I'm kind of cynical by nature. You know, part of it is that, you know, scientific, you know, my, I have scientific training, uh, in my, in my work. But also, you know, I came from this, this, spiritual tradition that on the one hand talked about love and on the other hand was deeply fundamentally homophobic. And, and, and I became cynical, you know, as an early child. So, you know, what I was taught, what I was taught was to have belief. You know, there's one true way. Your job is to follow it. Your job is not to think your job, job is not to question it. Um, your job is to obey learn it and, and obey it. Um, and McLeod talks about belief. He says it's a closed system in which everything is explained. The mystery of life is dismissed. New ideas, perspectives, and approaches to life cannot enter, and certain questions can never be asked. And he compares that to faith, which is, which is an openness and a willingness to receive whatever arises, to embrace sensation, feeling, thought, and allow our experiences to challenge our assumptions. There's no fundamental or eternal truths, and some things cannot be explained. They can only be experienced. The willingness to open to whatever rises is what he calls faith. So this great faith that Yamada Roshi talked about, in my mind, it's, it, it, it's this, a great willingness to engage in this process. And you see that faith in, 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 in bhakti chanting the names of God. And you also see it in a room full of Zen meditators, you know, people that are, are any meditators, people that are, that are, that are showing up and, and are willing to engage in this process. At the same time, uh, doubt is, is really important to me in this practice. Um, it's a matter of, of practicing as if nothing will happen. You know, they talk about no gaining ideas. Um, and the way this shows up for me is, is to be skeptical of everything, question everything, um, be skeptical of teachers. Um, everything that comes up, I put through the filter of, does this ring true for me? Um, it's okay to question. Uh, the Buddha said, basically, don't trust me, see for yourself. You know, here's, here's a set of actions. Um, here's a plan, try it out, see if it works. Um, when I first started studying with, with my teacher, Mark Lancaster, he's, 
he said, um, you might want to try this out for a couple of years. And, and, and if your life is not any better, um, maybe this isn't for you. Maybe you want to try something else. And, and part of the, this whole process of, of studying and, and going through Jukai, which is our initial lay vows, um, it's a matter of kind of, uh, Trump or Rinpoche talks about being in the spiritual supermarket. And it's like, hey, you can look at this and you can look at this and try this and try this. But when you're ready to check out, that's what Jukai is for, uh, for the Zen practice. Um, well, that doubt is very, is very healthy um, and essential. It's also one of the five hindrances. Um, self doubt can be paralyzing. Um, and, you know, doubt, doubt appeals to me because it tells me there's no one right way. It tells me to continue practice with this, see where it goes. If it doesn't seem to be working, try something different, you know? Um, so the benefit of that is that I can go to bhakti and, and completely give myself to the, to the chanting. You know, I'm drawn to, to these expressions of, of spiritual longing of, I, I love seeing how other people are experiencing this and this thing, this thing that we're all doing, this, this desire for transcendence. Um, a lot of people in various traditions have, have written about faith and doubt. I'll just share a couple of these with you. One is from Barbara O'Brien. She says, faith and doubt are supposed to be opposites. But the sensei says, if we have no faith, we have no doubt. True faith requires true doubt. Without doubt, faith is not faith. Um, Kierkegaard says that faith without doubt is simple credulity, the will to believe too readily, especially without adequate evidence, and that in doubt can faith begin. And Stephen Batchelor says, the acceptance of such doubt as basic to Buddhist practice qualifies the meaning of faith. Faith is not the equivalent of mere belief. Faith is the condition of ultimate confidence that we have the capacity to follow the path of doubt to its end. Suzuki Roshi talks about, you know, beginner's mind and the don't know mind. These are minds that are receptive to realization. It's the mind of faith and doubt. Um, where, where all the possibilities are open. And then, then the great determination piece, you know, this, this practice, it does take effort and it takes right effort pointed in the right direction. Um, Suzuki Roshi says that the fruits of Buddhist practice are nothing special. He says that enlightenment is ordinary and the ordinary is sacred. He says, if you continue this simple practice every day, you will obtain some wonderful power. Before you attain it, it is something wonderful. But after you attain it, it is nothing special. And he also says, if your practice is good, you might become proud of it. What you do is good, but something more is added to it. The pride is extra. Right effort is to get rid of that something extra. So we're not trying to do anything special. What we're doing is we're finding the sacred in our everyday practice. 
Um, and for me, practice is about waking up to that sacred nature of the ordinary. Um, you know, I see this, I see this in my work a lot, um, dealing with, um, dealing with, with, with my patients and, and their families and their caregivers who are, you know, going through the aging process and going through the dying process and, and the way that people show up for that on a day in day out basis, whether it's giving someone a bath or helping them dress or turning them in bed or emptying a bed pan. I mean, all of these things are incredibly mundane and they're incredibly sacred. And I see that over and over. It's such a gift to me to be allowed to be a part of that process. And, and the challenge and something that I forget all the time is to find that same sacredness in the everydayness of, of my own aging. You know, I turned, I turned 65 this year. I'm now qualified to be one of my patients. And, and it's, it's kind of amazing, you know, because in my mind, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a strong 30, you know, maybe 35 on a bad day. Um, I'm not 65. And yet my body reminds me on a, on a regular basis that I am. And so my challenge is to find that sacredness that I, that I see in this aging process in the people that I work with. So kind of to circle it back around is like, you know, why do we need faith? Um, we lack evidence of the, of the transcendent of the otherness. Uh, but we practice anyway. You know, why, you know, why do we need doubt? You know, doubt could lead us to question the need for anything other than what we already have. You, know, you already have everything you need. We all do. Um, we don't need to strive for something more than we already have. Uh, what we have already is extraordinary and it's very ordinary. And it's sacred. Um, the question becomes, do we have the paradoxical faith to believe that what we have is extraordinary? And there's a dance between faith and doubt that can serve to return us to who we already are and realize that's enough. We can, you know, we, we relax into the ordinary and the ordinary is sacred. So I guess that another question it then comes up. If we already have everything we need, if we are complete, uh, why do we practice? Uh, and the best answer I can come up with for that is that we can't, we don't stay in that realization. You know, the mind takes us here and it takes us there and it takes us back in the other place and, and, and all that moving and, and, and shaking and, and, and striving, um, leaves us with a sense of lack. And, and what practice does is it brings us back to that center place of wholeness, um, which we can't stay in. <laughs> so we practice to keep coming back to the place. Um, you know, I've been studying the Lotus Sutra with, with my teacher and, and it, it talks very much about this idea of uh, many rivers, one ocean. You know, the Buddha taught to different people for, it, it, according to their abilities to understand. And, and, and I see it, I see it here. You know, we're all striving towards the same thing. 
you know, the devotional practices of bhakti are one river. Uh, Zen practice is another. I believe someone from the uh, Pure Land tradition spoke recently, and yeah, that, that's another river. Um, for me, it doesn't really matter what your practice is. To me, the important question is, does your practice make you a kinder, gentler being? And then kind of to bookend this, I'd like to read, leave you with another koan, a very brief koan. This one's from Titnat Han, and it's from a book called Zen Keys. And the case says, the second ancestral teacher begs Bodhidharma to pacify his mind. Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I will pacify it for you. The second teacher replies, I have looked and looked, but I can't find it. Bodhidharma answers, your mind has been pacified. Crowned with garlands, and the commentary is crowned with garlands, the three-year-old child plays the drums. The eight-year-old man plays the balloon. And the verse says, if mind is not mind, who can we ask for advice? Is it possible to become a fetus again? The old monk who thinks he can calm the mind of another is just mocking everyone around him, and he doesn't even know it. So thank you all for listening to me this evening. And um, I look forward to hearing what your experiences are with, with faith, doubt, belief, your practice. Um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. I was um, kind of on point for me this week. I was in the hospital with a friend who was dying. And... Um, I don't know, faith, I'm not sure where faith entered into it. It seems like faith is can be kind of situational that way. It's like, oh, you reach for it in moments of crisis. And like I have a, a woman friend who feels like the only time she believes in the patriarchy is when she's on a plane. And it's, so I think it's a matter of, um, we don't, I don't pay attention to it really until moments of crisis. So in this, and it felt like in in the room, I guess I'd like to maybe t take advantage of your expertise here. And it was like in, we were, I mean, it felt like people were comfortable um, more or less, you know, being calm and just, um, our friend was basically not kind of lapsed out of consciousness more or less for the last couple of days. Um, and I think all of us were kind of trying to be very calm and with him and express love and, and whatnot. But inside we were all going, ah, you know, and, um, and then people from who work in the hospital would come in and they would just act like, you know, treat him like a, a another person, like a real person, you know, not, there was no, um, no kid gloves. And it, it felt like we were, maybe nobody wanted to bring up the subject of him dying and let him bring it up if, if he could. Um, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do and like what, what your advice might be in a situation like that. Like, should, should people 
who are visiting like introduce the subject of dying um, to try to get a conversation happening or just let leave it to the person who's passing to bring it up. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the principles that I always refer to in, in, in that kind of a situation is that everyone is doing the best they can at all times. Um, and, and a lot of us, and I've, I've been guilty of this myself. It's that fear of doing the wrong thing has kept me from being there. Or I'll go in and because I'm uncomfortable, I leave quickly. The fact that you were there, you're doing the right thing. You're absolutely doing the right thing. And, um, whether or not it's, it's, it's the right thing to do, what, what, what I have done is I don't initiate that, but I've had patients of mine ask me, am I dying? And I say, yes, you are. Mm-hmm. You know, and then have that conversation and I let them lead the conversation. And sometimes it's just, okay, I just want to know. And other times I, I, I can sense that there's more to be said, you know, and then I might, I might probe a little bit. Um, but I, I think most people that are dying have an idea that they are. And I, I, I don't initiate that conversation myself. Thank you. Yeah. Or you can use the hands up feature if you'd like, or raise your hand in the room or just start talking. Um. Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, I have a Pema Children little book that has like a hundred little talks or, you know, little reflections. And I read one every night. Um, and I've been doing it for a few years and it's always, I always see something different or hear something different. But one thing she talks about a lot is being curious. Um, not judging what comes up, um, but just looking at it and saying, oh, yeah, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. Um, could you say something about maybe the difference between doubt and curiosity? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I guess I would say that the, the mind that is that is closed to doubt is probably closed to curiosity. I think I think that that desire to understand or be open to new experiences. I think I think those both come from the same place. Um, when I when I'm in a place of doubt, it opens up curiosity. Okay, if this I, I'm, I'm questioning this, so what are the other options? What what else could it be? Um, so yeah, I like that. I like that uh, that that definition of faith as being open to what happens. I think is what Pema Chodron is, is talking about. Just, um, there's a story I read recently about someone ask, 
uh, a woman ask about, you know, what is, you know, you know, what, what is, how do I practice? And they said, well, just go sit in a, in a, um, sit in a chair in the middle of a room and, and, and just sit there quietly and, and see who shows up. And, and that to me is faith because you're open to whoever does show up. Um, and there's a, there's a curiosity to there. Um, the postscript to this story is this woman thought he was being literal and came back the next day and complained that I sat there for hours and nobody showed up. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we have to be careful about how literal we are with things. <laughs> Did I understand correctly when you said that um, it, it is like devotion for you is um, being available to faith? Is, or is, is that... Um, could you just re recap what you've... Your, your sense of what devotion... where devotion fits in? Into my practice, um, yeah. it, it doesn't much, frankly. Um, and that's what contrasted with uh, the devotion that I saw in, in in bhakti, because there's a there's an emotionalism that I don't feel in my practice. And for me, doubt is what takes its place. Uh -huh. You know, doubt is what keeps me engaged. Um, it, um, yeah, I don't. I, I don't see that. That, that in, 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 in my Zen practice, I don't see a lot of it. Um, a lot of devotion, other than other than, and, and it's not a motive, and it's not expressive, other than a devotion to this practice. You know, to continue to come back to the mat. So I guess there is an element of devotion there. And I do feel a very, very strong affinity, although I don't think, you know, in the, in the sort of, from what I understand of the guru traditions and in the Tibetan tradition, there's this devotion towards uh, one's teacher or one's guru. Um, I don't feel that quite as strongly. And yet my heart connection to my teacher is incredibly strong incredibly strong i i just don't feel it as emotional as it looks to me from the outside that other people are in other traditions um i i i changed teachers recently um which was a really really hard decision for me that um the teacher that ordained me moved to seattle and kind of did this long distance thing and the zoom and the phone and I went up there for a few times and after a while I, I, I realized that without that, that FaceTime, the heart time just wasn't there to the degree that I needed it. And so I've started working with a new teacher recently. Um, somebody I've worked with and studied with for years. So, so even though I'm a Zen priest, I see myself as a Zen student more, much more than, than a priest. I'm still trying to figure out what a priest is. Hmm. 
<laughs> I am a Zen student. I know that. Great. Tom? Hey, Tom. Thanks for a rich talk. Um, sometimes I sit here in silence because I'm digesting um, so much great information. But um, I really appreciate the way you contrasted bhakti and Zen through that lens of faith, doubt, and determination. Um, can you say a little bit more about determination? Because, you know, when you said Zen, in Zen meditation, it involves no agenda or goal or belief that something extraordinary should happen. <clears throat> so, you know, other than, okay, just stick at it for several years and see what happens. What does determination look like in Zen and maybe even in Bhakti? Great. Great, great question, Tom. Um, well, part of it, part of it is the, you know, the no fateful path and, and sort of this prescription, this recipe for living that the, that the Buddha laid out. You know, in my experience, my life has grown immeasurably better. And it's kind of one of those Zen paradoxes. You know, they, they seem to like to do this kind of Zen sleight of hand of, you know, saying it's this, but, and it's not this at the same time. You know, it, it's the mind of knowing and the mind of not knowing. And it's both and neither. And, and, um, part of that, I think is to get us beyond this idea of, of these fixed ideas, you know, that, that, um, that keeps us in this rigid ideology. So it keeps us in a place of doubt, but, but to stay there and to keep coming back to it, it, ta- it takes determination. I mean, you have to want, you have to want to do this. And even though we're told not to have a gaining idea when we sit, the fact of the matter is we sit because it does good things for us. You know, it, it, and it's almost like, it's almost like, okay, don't tell anybody what the secret sauce is. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, yeah, this does things to your nervous system. You know, it does things to your blood pressure. It, 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 it rewires your brain. You know, it, it, your brain has this capacity for neuroplasticity and, mm-hmm. and, and meditation and practice changes you on a physiological level as well as on a social level and an emotional level and, and, and everything else. So having a belief in that process because of my experience with it keeps me coming back. Um, you know, there are a lot of times where I have huge resistance to this practice. Um, there's times that I'm like, really happy to sit, you know, particularly if I'm in a place where I'm just like, I, I need, you know, I, I need it. I need it sometimes. And sometimes I'm dragged kicking and screaming it to it, you know, like a toddler that doesn't want to take a bath. You know, I get this, this resistance. It just doesn't want to do this. And okay, maybe I can't do it today, but I come back to it, you know, because I have faith that I have faith and a willingness. And I, I guess, I guess that's where the determination comes from. 
is is willingness to experience this and and yeah yeah i think that's it yeah thank you thank you in fact your explanation reminds me of hearing a teacher talk about you know there's the diagnosis there is suffering there's the prescription the eightfold path but you know we're we need to be willing to take the medicine over and over and over you know and yeah that's you've reminded me that's sort of the the lens we can see it through thank you all right and you know there's and, and I know this from from my re, my recovery work where where it becomes really rich and meaningful and rewarding is when you can turn around and be of service to other people you know that's one of the fundamentals of of recovery is is you recover by helping other people to recover and that being of service is kind of where practice takes you you know and and it makes your life richer and more meaningful even though we're not sitting for any reason <laughs> thanks tom well i guess there are no further questions thank one you quick, so much tom. one quick quick question yeah um, as an amateur poet i love when uh dharma teachers bring in poems to illustrate their uh, points uh what was the name of that last poem you shared with Thich Nhat Hanh? Is there a name or a phrase that I could look it up? Yeah, it's from a book called Zen Keys. Okay. And in the back of it, he has a number of um, uh, koans, and this is number eight. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Great. Um, okay, so thank you, Tom. And uh, Here, everybody. we'll have uh, announcements now. Do we have a speak, uh, host today? Yes, I am your host today. Uh, please stay and enjoy the company of the Sangha, uh, the refreshments and hot water for tea. Uh, if you use a cup, just put it in the sink and I'll take care of it. Uh, I'll be going around with the Don Wall to accept contributions to cover our expenses. Your generosity is appreciated. Donations in the range of $10 to $20 help. Uh, these include honorary for our Dharma speakers, rent for this beautiful center, and our quarterly newsletter, mostly mailed to people in prison. Uh, there's a new cover sign-up sheet on the credenza. If you wish to be included and receive our Sangha membership directory, please sign up and include contact information you wish to share with the group. And at 12.30, some members go out for lunch, and they meet at the front door. And next week, our speaker will be uh, Donna Dasa Chan. Um, Donna Dasa has been practicing with the San Francisco Buddhist Center, this place right here, since 1993, and was ordained in 2011. His current interest is cultivation of metta, universal loving-kindness as a response to the hatred, discrimination, and bigotry in the world. Um, there are also some opportunities for service of this to, with this Sangha. Um, we could use some people who might be willing to help do setup of Zoom or who might be willing to host uh, once every couple of months. Um, I guess that's 
those are the only announcements. So we'll gather for the dedication of merit. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, Tom. Really wonderful talking. It was really, you know, I, I appreciate what you had to say about um, being with people who are passing, who are dying. It was, Thank you. It was helpful. It's sacred work. Just sacred. I was. It was amazing to see the, the people in the hospital though come in and act like you know, not not change the way they behave towards. You know, just they were kind and they were sensitive, but they, you know, we're here. We're you know, we've got something to do. And you're here, and you know. Was, you know, one of one of my aha moments was. Uh, this is years ago, back to sort of the height of the AIDS crisis, and sitting with my best friend who was who was dying as his last day, and you know his his uh, lover was on one side, and I was on the other side, and we we're holding his hands, and this nurse came bustling in to check his vital signs and and everything, and and I actually took her aside, and I'm like, stop, just leave us alone. You know, and, and even though I had been through my own training, it hadn't occurred to me at that time how invasive that is and how inappropriate it is. Mm. And luckily she, she's like, Oh, okay. And stop. And then left us alone. And then we passed. And then we stayed there for probably another four hours. And then they let us, you know, bathe them and, and change clothes. And, uh, nice. Very, very meaningful. Very meaningful. But yeah, the hospital is not geared towards. Respecting that, you have to ask for it, unfortunately. No, I didn't mean to say that they were doing anything inappropriate. Oh. I thought they were, I mean, I, I was, I was admiring that they were not, they were not like sitting back and afraid to say anything, like kind of the way we were. They were just like, oh, Mr. Smith, time for your, you know, we're right. going to clean you now. And, you know, like it was. Yeah. And talk to him, and it wasn't. They weren't. No, no, no. They, I was admiring the way they they were with him. Okay, good. Good. You know, Cass, I um, I took a course on, like, well, like an evening class on vigiling, um, and it was really helpful when my mom died in April, because a couple of the things I employed were to, you know, put a sign up on the door that I printed out. Um, you know, just reminding people and maybe no phones or, you know, whatever you think is appropriate. I also put a candle, a little electric candle outside her door and I had those inside. And then I had, you know, soft music playing 
that I thought would be soothing to her, but also like a, a ver, um, audible cue for people like, no, this is a sacred space. You know, don't just uh-huh. come in here and bustle about. And it, uh-huh. it really changed the energy of the whole situation. It was really beautiful. Interesting. Uh-huh. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you can, I even on the sign, it said vigil, vigil in process, you know, mm-hmm. and then please know this, you know, you know, I mean, there were some that are encouraging. It wasn't a list of don'ts, you know, like be, be respectful, be present, take calls outside, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, it's good. Nice. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your time in Palm Springs. Thank you. <laughs> We're actually now we're driving back. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.